Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. This is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters, and I am the host, John Moorhead. I'm privileged today to have as my guest, Joseph Laycock. Uh, Joe is an assistant professor of religious studies at Texas State University. He has written several books on new religious movements and American religious history. He is a, also a co-editor for the journal, journal Nova Religio. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's, uh, I've enjoyed your work for a number of years and have been able to contribute some to what you're doing, and you've contributed to some of my projects I always like to begin on a personal note. Uh, how did you get involved uh, developing a personal as well as an academic interest in some of the subject matter that you cover? You know, a lot of this kind of fell into my lap uh, where, where it happened by accident. Uh, I was a high school teacher. You know, originally I was uh, in a program at Harvard to promote religious literacy in, uh, in, in public high schools. And we can talk about that maybe in a different episode <laughs> of the podcast. Um, and, and after a while, I decided I wanted to go back to, uh, to pursue a PhD in religious studies. And I was in Atlanta. I was working with at-risk youth in Atlanta. And I happened to find out about um, the, the so-called real vampire community, uh, which for various reasons, Atlanta is, is kind of a hub for. And uh, I thought this would make a really interesting paper because I was going to the American Academy of Religion basically to press the flesh and so that people would have a face to, to put with my graduate application. And I thought, you know, if I'm giving a paper, um, then I kind of, it, it's, it's a kind of a better uh, package that I'm, I'm selling trying to get into grad school. Uh, so originally, I just want to do an eight page paper on this community who identified as vampires and there was some literature out there um, but it was pretty bad from the angle of religious studies and the assumption was just uh, these people are so weird this must be a cult and, and actually it, it dovetailed into the literature of the satanic panic right so people who identify as vampires hate Christians and want to murder them and, and all this sort of nonsense and no one had actually just asked this community is this is this stuff true do you hate Christians are you are you a cult? Uh, so that's, uh, that was kind of what started all of this. And what I didn't know in 2007 was that right around the corner was uh, Twilight mm. and True Blood. And so we kind of went into vampire mania for a couple of years. And I had my 15 minutes of fame and I was on Geraldo and MTV called and asked if I would host a show interviewing <laughs> vampires <laughs> Uh, they went with Jersey Shore. They didn't go with that idea for a, a show, but I, I did talk to them. Um, and, and so a lot of the things I was interested in got kind of pigeonholed as new religious movements, which I eventually came to embrace. I guess I'm a scholar of, of, of new religious movements. Um, so, so I guess my kind of advice here to young scholars is, on the one hand, there's, there's the old adage that if you want to stand out in your field, pick an empty field. And so things like vampires are a good way to do that. And I also think there's arguments why it's important to have good research done on, on groups like that, that people are afraid of or associate with, with, with crime. Uh, on the other hand, uh, 
religious studies as a field is still very shaped by the so-called world religion paradigm mm-hmm. where only about five religious traditions matter and everything else is kind of seen as more something for the sociologists or the anthropologists to worry about uh, and, and shouldn't be taken seriously. And uh, very few people will come out and, and say this in religious studies that, you know, other religions don't matter. Minority religions don't matter. Uh, but in terms of what people will give money to, uh, what kinds of tenure track jobs people will create, uh, the world religions paradigm very much matters. And so uh, I'm kind of a unique case in that I was able to sort of um, uh, a, a kind of bullseye where I was able to still do these interesting projects um, that, that attracted attention, uh, but also not just write myself entirely out of religious studies as a, as a field. Well, but before I get into some questions about uh, some of your books, um, for years I wrestled with trying to kind of put a label and a category over, over my seemingly contradictory interests. On the one hand, I, I'm fascinated by monsters in pop culture. And on the other hand, I deal with interreligious conflict. And it finally dawned on me a few years ago, monstrosity is what I'm interested in. Uh, both how monsters surface in our entertainment and what they tell us about ourselves and how we act monstrously oftentimes because of our religion and how we relate to each other. Is there a a particular category or something that would you see as describing your work or, or perhaps not? I mean, I'm, I'm very interested in, I think, I think if anything unites it, it is probably moral panic, right? It's probably uh, those groups which we are um, afraid of or have kind of built up in, into uh, demonic figures uh, and also how people deal with that label, right? So um, I'm interested in possessed people, right? Because possessed people, regardless of what you think are happening to them, are people who say, yes, I am a demon. (laughs) And I'm going to act exactly the way that my culture says demons act. And I'm interested in uh, Satanists for similar reasons, that they are sort of taking these these projections of a moral panic and playing with it, either doing terrible things, living down to all the worst claims about what Satanists do, or groups like the Satanic Temple sort of trying to leverage it uh, for various ways. So I think that's kind of the common thread. Uh, but, but also I, I think that uh, kind of one thing leads to another. So when I was researching vampires and trying to find everything about the so-called real vampire community, um, that led me to uh, a woman in Bayside, Queens, who said that she was getting messages from Mary. And some of those messages were about literal vampires living among us. Uh, and that woman was Veronica Lucan, and that ended up being my dissertation topic. Um, and then I found out that Veronica Lucan had basically put her nose into the Son of Sam investigations in the 1970s, and that her followers had made a major contribution to some of the conspiracy theories of the satanic panic. And so that led me more down, down that uh, area of, of research. So uh, to some extent, I'm kind of just grabbing things as, as they fall, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad way to to do research um it doesn't sound as good on paper but it's uh, it's it's kind of a more honest answer right yeah yeah it sounds very organic and it seems to have worked for you that, that's for sure um you you started out at the beginning you mentioned your work in vampires i'd like to ask you a couple of things about that we're talking about uh your book vampires today the truth about modern vampirism and folks can look in the program notes and find uh, the titles and the links to the books that we'll be talking about to track those down. You've already mentioned what led you to study vampires, but what about your approach? You approach them as an identity group. What, all folks who may not be familiar with that kind of approach. 
Sure. So, so when I began this research, the assumption that seemed to be dominant in the literature, and I'm talking about things like the Encyclopedia of American Religion, uh, seemed to assume that, that this was a religious movement, like you uh, renounce Christianity and you take an oath of vampirism or, or something like that, right? And this was not the way that the, the vampires that I talked to saw at all. Um, and interestingly, a lot of them were Christians because this was Atlanta, right? And this was, you know, just outside Atlanta, you're in the rural uh, Bible belts. And I met vampires who, who went to church every Sunday and their kids were in parochial school and, and so forth. And they said, this isn't a religious thing at all. I was born this way. And the way that they framed it uh, was similar to the LGBTQ community of sort of, we didn't choose to be vampires, we were born differently with these different characteristics and we use the word vampire as a kind of shorthand to uh, encapsulate that. Um, and I've, I've talked to some gay people who hear that argument from vampires and they say, but they're kind of throwing us under the bus because I really am gay and they, <laughs> they, I don't accept that they were actually born a, a, a vampire. Um, that's not my job to adjudicate those, those arguments, but that's how they frame it. So the other angle of thinking about this well is well it's a mental illness right if, if you really believe that you're a vampire you're disturbed and you have schizophrenia or you have pica or there are all sorts of sort of armchair analyses of these people i don't think either mental illness or a religion as we traditionally think of religion is a good way to encapsulate what's really going on with these people and how they understand their identity so one of the things that i get into is is kind of a need for some sort of third box uh, to put people like vampires in who are, are very different from the mainstream, but it, it obscures more than it reveals to call them a religion. And I also just didn't think that they were mentally ill. They had had some strange experiences, but I thought if, if I had these experiences, I would probably proceed in a similar way. I don't see any evidence here of disordered thinking or, or anything like that. And also I have the modesty to say, I'm not a psychiatrist. I can't diagnose people with a mental illness. I, I wish more people would, uh, would uh, admit that too. Well, what kinds of identities are we talking about? I think a lot of people who, uh, when they think about vampires, they think about what they see in horror movies and the undead. And, and, and these folks don't literally think that they're, they're undead. What kinds of identities do they have that you find that are common in the community? Sure. So there's the so-called lifestyle vampires, and these are individuals um, who, this is a, a very much about the clothes that they wear, the music that they listen to, uh, the movies that they watch. And then you have the so-called real vampires, and those are the ones making these essentialist claims. Uh, and so these are people saying, look, I, I could dress any way that I want, but I'll never stop being a vampire, right? And so they would say, I need to uh, consume small amounts of human blood, or I, my health begins to deteriorate, or I need to feed on the psychic energy of other people. And, and if I don't, um, I, I, I feel uh, uh, weak. Um, now, oftentimes these things dovetail, right? So someone could both dress the part and say, well, this is an expression of, you know, my, my true self, which is I also happen to be a vampire. And I have these um, kind of health issues that, that, that sort of define the, the essentialist identity. So it gets very uh, blurry, but, but there are people on, on one extreme who would just say, right, I, I have expensive prosthetic fangs and I love goth music and so forth. And anyone who thinks they're a real vampire is kind of a little bit uh, uh, off. And on the other end, you have people who, um, you know, buy their clothes at Walmart and look very normal and listen to, you know, 
top 40 pop music and say, well, I, I wish I didn't need to consume human blood, but unfortunately I, I do. Uh, and then you have a kind of whole spectrum uh, uh, in between. So it's, it's sort of a weird uh, coalition uh, of, of people with different identities uh, that, that converge around this word vampire. Well, we could uh, spend this podcast just doing a whole podcast on any number of topics that you focused in on books. But what I am hoping to do is just kind of give folks a sampling of uh, what I think is uh, some fascinating work. I've always been attracted to what some would just casually dismiss as the fringe. And uh, I think it's got some great significance. Moving from vampires to the topic of gaming, you've got another book called uh, Dangerous Games, what the moral panic over role-playing games says about play, religion, and imagined worlds. Um, were you a gamer? Did you have a personal interest as a gamer in diving into this topic, or how did that arise? Yeah, so I grew up in the 80s in Texas, and I loved um, Dungeons & Dragons, and that was seen by a lot of adults that I met as this extremely dangerous, uh, satanic, uh, a game that was going to make me commit suicide and you know maybe kill some other people before I, I committed suicide um and so I talk about this in the book but I think that that was kind of my first inkling that adults act like they understand everything but they actually don't right because as a child it was very obvious to me that this was just a game that had nothing to do with all these terrible things and the adults were simply uh, uh wrong so that that may have planted seeds that kind of led to my interest in moral panic and sort of trying to understand the sociology of irrational fears of which there was a lot in the, the, the 1980s. Uh, so Dangerous Games was the first book that I did after my dissertation had become a book. So it was my third book. And it was, uh, you know, it was where I felt like I had some freedom to do a topic that was important to me because I was on the academic job market I felt like I had done one book that was kind of like my vegetables, right? It was, was, was sort of showing I was a balanced uh, a scholar and I was serious and I could, you know, teach classes on American Catholicism or, or whatever. And then I wanted to do something that was interesting to me. And I had, I'd been wanting to say something about this panic over Dungeons and Dragons for a long time. And it really wasn't until I had a PhD in the sociology of religion that I felt like uh, I could actually... Uh, articulate what exactly about it was uh, was bothering me. And, and really, the, the book just begins with sort of trying to understand why certain conservative evangelicals in the 80s, first of all, why they focused on Dungeons and Dragons at all. Out of all the social issues that, that they could have focused on, why, why this? Um, and also why they seemed alienated from Christian elements of the game, because Dungeons and Dragons was created by pretty devout Christians, one an evangelical, one a Jehovah's Witness, uh, by some accounts. Um, and a lot of the references in the game are references to biblical miracles and things like this. Uh, and those Christian elements were seen as the evidence that it was a satanic evil game. So I found that very interesting, right? Mm -hmm. Why is your own religion sort of uh, uh, frightening to you when you see it in, in, in this context? Um, so, so that's that's a big part of what it's trying to do is just sort of analyze that question um, and then also just to create a history of this panic because it is a weird kind of um, understudied moment in American history. I feel like now a lot of books have come out talking about this um, but but in the 80s it was just sort of it wasn't considered important uh, uh, news it wasn't considered part of the American religious history 
so, so I also wanted something just sort of chronicling uh, the, the rise and fall of this, this panic. Uh, did you come away with any ideas or conclusions as to, to the elements and why uh, the conservative Christians, is it, is it the un, you know, fear of the unbridled imagination that somehow that's going to be played with by satanic forces? Is it uh, the constant go-to boogeyman for many evangelicals, the occult and, and Satanism and witchcraft, or is it a combination of different things? So on the one hand, you know, most of the people who participate in this were just taking advice from their pastors or their religious leaders or whatever, that this is an evil game. And, you know, looking at the covers of those books from the 70s and 80s, and they have giant demons and skulls on them and so forth. I don't really blame them for, for you know, taking that, that suspicion. But if you actually read, you know, these essays about why this game is, is so terrible and so evil, uh, a couple things get, get really interesting. So one is that a lot of the people promoting these claims seem to be... Uh, liars right seem to to just be uh just totally shameless liars and to actually live in a kind of fantasy world so william schnobelin a very controversial uh figure uh basically said you know i used to be a satanist before i came to jesus and the creators of dungeons and dragons consulted me uh to make sure that all of the the evil magic in the game was authentic and would actually lead people to satanism and that's just not true Right. And, you know, Schnobelin has this whole kind of, frankly, fantasy world that he lives in, right, where he is this kind of lone figure against all these literally kind of Lovecraftian forces of, of Satan. Like he's written about how he's found the Necronomicon and, and, and things like this. Um, and, and so many figures were like that, that were just sort of lying and creating this heroic story for themselves. Uh, and so I found that very ironic, right, of who is actually... Uh, you know, lost reality is living in a fantasy world. It's not people playing D&D, right? It's the people uh, uh, condemning it. So that was one area that I kind of wanted to analyze of that, that sort of analysis. The other one was some of these essays would get to a point of basically just saying the imagination itself is, is evil and literally making arguments like, you know, fire hydrants are red because it's God's will that fire hydrants are red. And if you imagine a blue fire hydrant, that is rebelling against God, right? And, and I found that just bizarre. Sound argument. Because, <laughs> it's, it's, that's right. It's funny because if, if you look at the history of Christianity, traditionally, Christianity has seen the imagination as a gift from God, right? As, as a way that we can uh, understand God. Not Maybe not completely, but we can come closer to an understanding. If you look at the sort of mystical traditions of, of Europe, or you look at even things like Dante's Inferno, the imagination is seen as something um, uh, important, certainly not something to be afraid of. Uh, and so I'm interested in that too, of kind of how did the imagination itself come to be feared? And I think that a lot of that is because people with imaginations are harder to control. You know, uh, if, if you can uh, if you know, this is covered even in books like 1984, right? In 1984, the party is trying to reduce language because if people can't talk about things, they can't have certain ideas and then they can't ever uh, uh, resist. So I think there was a concern there that the kids can't get too imaginative or they might renounce their church or they might choose a different lifestyle or something like this. But also I think that the imagination is a kind of muscle and that if you never use it, if you're constantly afraid of it, 
you actually lose the ability to discern fantasy from reality. So I don't think it's a coincidence that people who see the imagination as something rebellious and something opposed to Christianity are also the ones living in these bizarre fantasy worlds where they're reading the Necronomicon and they're, you know, sort of a lone force against uh, these satanic conspiracies that, that don't exist. Uh, so that was kind of one of the interesting findings of, the, of that book. I remember uh, years ago when I was uh, working my way out of the evangelical countercult apologetic community and having some really strong disagreements, trying to introduce the possibility of, of winsome dialogical engagement. And I remember some exchanges with some of these folks, one who called himself Apologedi, with that name itself reveals a whole lot. And he said, how, how is a winsome approach going to help me protect the church from the forces of darkness? So there was this almost I'm the hero of this story and I'm a Jedi Knight fighting against the forces of darkness. So uh, does this kind of play into that kind of hero narrative that, that they're creating to their own use of fantasy and imagination? Yeah, absolutely. And, and what was so interesting is I think that, you know, Gary Gygax, who is one of the creators of Dungeons and Dragons, I think that he had the same fantasies as a lot of these evangelicals, right? So he invented a character class called the Paladin, and he, you know, the paladin goes out and fights demons and witches and all this sort of stuff. And it was a very similar fantasy. I think both these people wanted to uh, be a character in that story of kind of real archetypal uh, good versus evil, God versus Satan. The difference is that Gygas could say, well, I'm not really a paladin. I actually, you know, maybe I do some charity work here and there, <laughs> but this is a, this is a game I like to play and it's, it's emotionally satisfying and it's inspirational. Um, and his opponents said, well, no, this all has to be real or it doesn't matter, right? And, and so since there were no actual sort of literal demons for them to show up and, and fight, they would say, well, this scary guy, 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 he's got to be evil. He's got demons in his story, right? <laughs> and said, well, there's demons in your story, too. You just don't admit that it's a story, right? Right, right. <laughs> well, you've done uh, several projects dealing with uh, spirit possession, exorcisms, and the devil, uh, one of them, you were the editor of Spirit Possession Around the World, Possession, Communion, and Demon Expulsion Across Cultures, and I was uh, privileged to provide a few entries in that. Um, what I appreciated about it was it, it was interdisciplinary, it was cross-cultural. Um, what attracted you to that topic and taking that approach to the subject matter? So when I was in uh, grad school, I, I just took a course on um, the, the history of religion in America, and we were assigned to read The Exorcist. Um, and, you know, th this was a professor of history, but he really felt that The Exorcist was a snapshot of a particular moment in America in 1971. Um, and of course, The Exorcist is based on a true story. Uh, and so I wrote my, my term paper for that course on um, kind of the, the religious life world that William Peter Blatty was living in and how that got reflected in the, in the book. Uh, and then I eventually turned that into a, a journal article. So that was kind of my first project on um, the phenomenon of, of exorcism. Um, and then ABC Clio is the group that did Vampires Today, and they also make reference materials. And uh, they had a plan for a, a book of spirit possession around the world, and I signed up to, to do it. Um, at the time, I probably didn't really understand how big the field was, right? <laughs> how interdisciplinary this is, um, how each kind of academic discipline approaches it from a totally different angle. So the anthropological literature on possession is totally different from the 
historical literature uh, and, and so on. Um, but but doing an encyclopedia like this was fun because first of all, I could I could tap experts, right? I could I could get people who knew what they were talking about to do each article, and then I got this kind of survey of um, uh, of the whole field, this kind of mosaic uh, picture of it. Uh, and then I was hired by Texas State University, which was trying to create a new major in religious studies. And they said, we want you to get butts in seats. So create a religion class that's really going to get students to sign up for it. So I, I did a class on exorcism. And that was that was, you know, very, very popular that that did the trick. And I was able to do that because I had just come off of editing this this encyclopedia. Now, in, in reading all the entries and editing and all that, did you have any aha moments, any epiphanies that, that really struck you as you were going through it? Yeah, I mean, so one of the things that the anthropologists found is that spirit possession occurs in pretty much every culture on earth, right? So, so it's, regardless of what you think spirit possession is, it seems to be a kind of universal human experience. Um, at the same time, uh, cultures are very different as far as what they actually mean when they say someone is possessed by a spirit. So when you read the Gospels, of course, you have the Gerasene demoniac who has superhuman strength and is insane and says, my name is Legion. But most of the spirits that Jesus is casting out, it's just like this person is blind, right? Because they have a spirit. This person is lame and mute because they have a spirit. So possession was imagined more as, a, as an illness of the body before it exclusively became an illness of the, the soul. And there's a there's literature on sort of when that shift happened, which is probably around the time of the, the, the Protestant Reformation. Um, so I'm, so what anthropologists said is possession is really, it's an analytical category, right? That a culture has certain things and they say, if you're having these problems, it's, it's possession. And then the means of, of getting rid of spirits is interesting too, because it is so diverse, right? So in Christianity, of course, uh, spirits are, possessing spirits are seen as demonic and you have to um, somehow invoke the power of Jesus and the power of the church to, to banish them. And Christian churches disagree about how you do that. But in lots of other cultures, the first response might be, we'll figure out what it wants and then just give it what it wants and it will leave, right? <laughs> or even in very religious, diverse parts of the world, the first thing to do might just be ask the spirit what religion it is. And if it's a Hindu spirit, you know, you've got to read the Bhagavad Gita at it. And if it's a Christian spirit, you know, you've got to uh, read the Bible. And if it's a Muslim spirit, you got to read the, the Quran to it. So that was also interesting that our sort of assumptions about what exorcism is and what it looks like, which mostly comes from, frankly, horror movies like The Exorcist, uh, those assumptions are not necessarily shared at all in, in other cultures. And in fact, in most other cultures, possession is a more kind of neutral uh, experience where it can certainly be dangerous, but it's not seen as sort of spiritually dangerous and these these beings are more like wild animals you know you, you want to know what you're doing before you mess with them but it's not the kind of unmitigated evil um, that you see in things like the exorcist uh you've also got uh, a book under this cat well i guess we could put it under this category not not to be uh not to put it here incorrectly but you you've uh, written on the, the satanic temple and the book is speak of the devil how the satanic temple is changing the way we talk about religion and uh, I found that book really helpful, and I thank you for helping introduce me to uh, folks like Stephen Bradford Long and our conversations that uh, continue. Um, it's interesting to me in reading your book and continuing to, to research the, that particular group and looking at the mosaic that is contemporary Satanism, 
that so many times people still look back to Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan as that's what defines Satanism. Uh, how did you move beyond that and, and find the Satanic Temple as a research project and discover the significance that it has? So in a lot of ways, this goes back to what I was originally trying to do as a master's student, which was to introduce religious literacy into public schools. So a big part of that project was simply understanding the, the First Amendment, the Establishment Clause, and the Free Exercise Clause. And, you know, very few Americans understand the First Amendment at, at all, right? When I was a public school teacher, I worked under three principles. Uh, none of those principles had any understanding of the Establishment Clause or its implications for schools. And they had a vague sense that, well, you can't talk about anything religious in schools because people will get offended. That's not what the Supreme Court has said. It's just a misunderstanding of the, of the principles uh, at stake. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why Americans are so ignorant about this. Some of this is, is by design with political campaigns. A lot of it is just bad journalism. So when there's a big Supreme Court case, uh, the, the media rarely explains the arguments of the case. They just say who won and who lost, right? <laughs> uh, which, which contributes to um, the, the politicalization of, of our uh, uh, court system. Um, so the, the same example kind of went back to a lot of those issues, right? Because they were making claims like, well, we are a religion. We demand um, the same rights as everybody else under the free exercise clause, um, but we don't believe in anything supernatural. And for a lot of people, that's their assumption, right? Is, is religion is about your relationship with the, the supernatural. The Supreme Court has moved past that, but most people are, are ignorant of this. So I was interested in how the Satanic Temple was kind of forcing people to look a little bit deeper into these issues and think about things like, what does the free exercise clause actually mean? What does the establishment clause uh, uh, actually mean? Um, so for me, that's why what they're doing is uh, significant. Uh, and I started uh, covering them very early on for the online magazine, Religion Dispatches, uh, when they began doing things like saying, we want to build a big statue of the devil next to a Ten Commandments statue, and that way it will be fair, right? It won't be a violation of the uh, Establishment Clause. I, I thought that was sort of so um, clever, but also that they were totally crazy for doing it. So that was kind of what first uh, uh, drew my attention to them. Um, and then you mentioned Anton LaVey. So Anton LaVey founded the Church of Satan in 1966. Um, and uh, scholars of, of Satanism, which I don't consider myself uh, to be a, a true scholar of, of Satanism. There's a lot of people who have been doing this a lot longer um, it's very hard to get a job as a professor of Satanism. You, you pretty much have to go to Norway or someplace to, to, to get yes. hired. Uh, but, you know, they, they said Anton LaVey's ideas are, uh, are everywhere. The entire kind of satanic milieu is shaped by his ideas, even by Satanists who say they hate Anton LaVey and they hate everything he stands for, for, for various reasons. Um, but, uh, you know, LeVay took on the paradox of I want to make an organized church of people who believe in rebellion against all authority and, you know, kind of total freedom and, and in LeVay's case, libertarianism. Uh, and so the, the church state didn't really do very much for, for decades. And this was one of the big complaints of Lucian Greaves, who was kind of the, the founder of uh, the Satanic Temple, at least in the sense of he was the one who brought a tradition of Satanism uh, in when this, this, this group was, was created. Um, and so what we've seen is Satanism has gotten much more relevant. It was basically kind of certainly politically irrelevant before the Satanic Temple. It was maybe relevant to 
art and music and heavy metal and things like that prior. So it's gotten very political. And whereas the Church of Satan was very kind of right-leaning and, and very influenced by thinkers like Ayn Rand, uh, the Satanic Temple is pretty left-leaning, um, especially on issues like uh, LGBTQ rights, reproductive rights, and, and so forth. So we've seen a kind of uh, reformation uh, of, of Satanism uh, in the last few years, and not unlike the Protestant Reformation in Europe, there's a lot of schisms and fighting and, and, and arguing in, in the wake of this, because for Satanists, there's a lot at stake here, right? And, and they want to see their version of what Satanism is uh, come out on top. Now, of course, conservative uh, evangelicals and Catholics would see them as, as not even a true religion, echoing Tucker Carlson on Fox News. And uh, they would say that this is they're just being oppositional and evil. Um, but you're making the argument that this is, is forcing us, if we're able to do so, to rethink uh, Christian privilege, religious freedom. How does the way they're they're creatively using uh, art and performativity and things like that. How does that challenge and help us if we're able to rethink these important issues? Right. So, so an, an assumption that I encounter a lot is, well, the the founding fathers, you know, didn't want, uh, you know, black masses to be allowed, right? Which, <laughs> I mean. I, I think it was unimaginable to the founding fathers, right? That, that anyone would ever hold a black mass. I don't even know if they, they were familiar with that, that, that term. Um, but they would say things like, well, religion is, uh, freedom of religion is only for good religions. It's not for evil religions, right? <laughs> and, you know, it is fine if you're going to say, this is how I think the laws should be in this country. But that's very different from saying, this is what the laws uh, actually are. And if you go back and you read the Supreme Court decisions and you read, writings of people like Thomas Jefferson or James Madison, it's, it's pretty clear that uh, the government was never intended to pick good religions and bad religions, right? That that was never their uh, other job. Um, and the same example would admit that they are kind of pushing the envelope. So in 2014, they tried to hold a black mass at Harvard and that became a real uh, a debacle. Um, and Harvard was kind of in this bind because on the one hand, they really didn't want the Satanists to be allowed to do this. Um, and on the other hand, they claim that they're about religious pluralism and they're about a freedom of speech and freedom of expression. And I think they kind of didn't know what to do and they, they kind of um, uh, uh, weaseled out of it. But I, I, to me, it was interesting because it showed kind of, anybody can say I tolerate all religions and I believe in pluralism and free speech. And the same Temple is kind of saying, well, really put, put your money where your mouth is, right? We're not gonna, promote violence or hate or anything like that, but we're going to do something that is controversial and hard to watch and that a lot of people aren't going to want going on on their campus. What are you, what are you going to do about it? Uh, and in my opinion, uh, Harvard kind of ducked, right? Um, the added irony to this is their Black Mass, uh, the inspiration for that was the novel La Basse, which was written by a French Catholic in the 1800s. And it's basically, again, his imagination of what a satanic black mass would look like if he ever saw one, which I don't think he ever did. Um, so, so it's kind of taking this, this story from the Catholic imaginary about, again, these dark forces that people imagine themselves fighting and, and performing it. So if it had not been for this Catholic literature and these Catholic legends, they would have no uh, uh, story to base their, their ritual on. Um, so we can kind of get into who's really responsible for 
um, th this idea of a black mass, right? It's kind of interesting to me in tragedy to see some of the Christian responses, like uh, when the Satanic Temple has tried to uh, petition to be able to be uh, one of the folks to open up a, a prayer uh, in connection with city council meetings instead of just Christians doing it. And they get opposition. And many times the Christians just said, fine, nobody can pray. Um, so it makes you wonder how much they really, it's, it's almost like, you know, when your parents would get uh, ticked at the kids, you know, one kid's acting up and uh, the other kid wants their way and they would just say, forget it. Nobody gets anything. You know, it's not really addressing the issue. It's just taking away something that you find problematic because you don't want others to have the same freedoms. That's right. And one thing that really came out of these, uh, this is another area of this Tang Temple is, is suing for the right to give prayer invocations is, it, it, you know, most of these towns don't have any rules for who gives the prayer invocations until the Satanists show up. <laughs> right? And then they retroactively have to kind of make up the system for whose turn it is so that it looks fair and so forth. But it's very clear that this just began with, you know, we'll let the Methodists do it. Um, you know, one week and then once a month, the Presbyterians can do it. And then we're, that's fair. Right. <laughs> and there was never any of this concern. And a lot of this was participated again by um, the Supreme Court case. Right. A Greece v. v. Galloway, I believe, um, which was the Supreme Court said, you have to give everybody a turn. You have to let the minority religions uh, pray once in a while if, if, if they want to. Um, and so in a lot of towns, we're seeing them either just sort of suspending the whole thing or finding these ways to basically weasel out of it. So in, um, in uh, New Mexico, I believe, you know, they, they said, well, um, only chaplains from the police and fire department can give prayers, right? Which was the effect of that is means only mainstream Christians are, are gonna mm -hmm. give prayers, at least for the, the foreseeable uh, future. So it has the effect of making sure minorities never get a turn, even though the Supreme Court said that that's, that's what they have to do. So, um, the Satanic Temple has not been very successful at either stopping prayer invocations or getting a turn. And they've said, we're, we're happy with either of those. Um, what they have done, though, is kind of revealed a bit more kind of the links that people will go to, to make sure that this is, this is sort of a, a club that's only for Christians and, you know, one, one, one Jewish rabbi a year, right? And, and not really any, anybody else. So they've at least kind of revealed um, that there is a problem, whereas before it really wasn't clear that there was a problem. Yeah. Well, you've got another book under this general category, the Penguin Book of Exorcisms. Did you not get it out of your system with the uh, Encyclopedia of Spirit Possession? What, what led to that volume? Right. So, um, you know, I got a little kind of another 15 minutes of fame when I did the exorcism class at Texas State, and I was on Coast to Coast AM um, and, uh, I got approached by the conversation to write something, uh, about exorcism. Uh, and, and then I started getting contacted by publishers. And so this is Penguin Classics and, uh, Penguin Classics, they do basically old, mostly out of copyright, uh, literature. And one, one line of books that sold really well for them are these anthologies of classic texts on, dark topics. So the Penguin Book of Hell, the Penguin Book of Witches, the Penguin Book of the Undead. Uh, and they said, we'd like to do a Penguin Book of Exorcisms. Um, are, are you game? Uh, and, and so this was a little bit different because this was sort of finding primary texts. And so uh, there were a couple of things that I had found over the years that I actually just really wanted to, to share with people. So for example, some people know that there was an exorcism in Iowa in 1928 
it's not super well known, but people that are interested in Catholic exorcism know about it. Um, and there is an official account of that exorcism that says, you know, we, we, we did it and it's sort of written by and for the Catholic community and says we, we, we cast out these demons, uh, you know, not just the priests, but the whole Catholic community. We, we did it, guys, right? Everybody give yourself a pat on the back. And I found an alternate version of this, and there were two hand-typed hand copies of it at two uh, libraries in America that I was able to get my hands on. And it begins... Uh, this document is never to be published, right? <laughs> never talk about this, right? I said, well, this is interesting. And it was a much longer account of that exorcism. And what it reveals is the exorcism was never successful, right? right? That this woman was still possessed at the time of the writing. And that the monk who was exercising her had basically begun using her as a kind of oracle, Right. So she would say, well, the demons are here. I'm fighting the demons. And he would say, well, I, I got some questions for the demons. <laughs> right. And, and she said, well, there's angels coming to fight the demons. And, and so he's questioning all these beings through this woman. And out of this, he produces this prophecy that the world is going to end in 1958. Um, and that, you know, Jesus is going to come back in 1958, I think, in Iowa. Um, and of course, you can see why the church didn't want anybody reading this, right? It would have been very embarrassing if people began sort of pre preparing for this, uh, but it was a much more interesting story. And uh, so that was the sort of thing where I thought it would really be great to put an excerpt from this uh, in a book so that other people could, could read it. And of course, for Penguin Classics, I said, well, if it was never published, then we can, <laughs> we can publish it, right? This is exactly the kind of thing that we wanted you to find. Um, so there's some rare things like that. And then also I wanted to kind of try to show the range of exorcisms across cultures. So there is an account of a voodoo exorcism in Haiti. Uh, there is an account of a, a Native American ritual, which it's debatable whether it could be described as an exorcism, but it is meant to um, get hostile spirits to leave a member of their community uh, alone. Um, there is a, a hadith where Muhammad does an exorcism and that actually is an original uh, a, a translation. Um, so, so there was a lot of just kind of interesting stuff that I wanted to show people that, that we got to put together in, uh, in that book. Well, in listening to you describe that 1928 case, it just popped into my head. It it's, reminds me a lot of the Seth material and uh, the, the notion of trans-channeling, whereas in trans-channeling, it's a voluntary phenomenon, whereas in possession, I'm assuming this woman did not want that. Where, did, did any similarities pop in your head when you were reading through that? It's, it's such a strange document um, and you have to kind of read between the lines. But my kind of theory of this is, you know, the way the story is normally told is this woman is in Iowa and she's possessed and this sort of daring uh, monk goes out there to, to save her. What actually happened is she began exercising this woman when she was much younger in New York. And he was basically kicked out of the Diocese of New York for doing unauthorized exorcisms and gets sent out into the Midwest. And then in the Midwest finds a bishop who will approve an exorcism. And he has this woman shipped out on a train from New York out to Iowa. And that's where they, they, they do it. So they had a much longer relationship that basically lasted uh, most of this woman's life. Um, and I think that she may have been in love with him. Right. I think that this was a this was a kind of this was more than just a relationship between, um, you know, energumen, which is what the possessed person is called and an exorcist. And in fact, one of the things she would do is she would get possessed and she would write 
letters to her exorcist from the demons kind of taunting him right and saying you know if you don't get back here and, and do an exorcism we're going to make her do such nasty stuff <laughs> right you better get on a train and get out of here and then he would show up with this letter and you go oh my goodness i don't remember writing that that's <laughs> terrible <laughs> you know so i mean the story is is both it's got elements of tragedy to it but it's also in some ways kind of funny right of, of sort of thinking about these are these are humans with very kind of human wants and, and, and desires. And it's interesting to kind of speculate about what was really going on. The other thing that's very disturbing about that account is um, she's naming all the demons and one of the demons, quote unquote demons is her, her dead father. Mm. And he's saying, you know, why, what, what, why are you possessing this girl? And he basically says, because I, I tried to rape her when I was alive and now I'm in hell. Uh, so there's plenty there for therapists, right, to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to sift through about what's what's happening here. Yeah, well, hopefully the therapists would get paid extra for bringing in extra entities other than just the individual. But um, almost right. to pick in your brain, I promise. Uh, moving to the uh, subject of monstrosity, you uh, co-edited a volume, Religion, Culture, and the Monstrous of Gods and Monsters with Natasha uh, Mickles, and it brings together monster theory and religious studies. When I first saw the promotion for this, I, I stood up and, and cheered to see these two things finally brought together. For those who may have no idea what in the world you're trying to accomplish, what is the basic idea? What's the volume about? Well, this has been a really interesting subfield in the area of religious studies for a long time. I think uh, Timothy Beale's uh, book, Religion and Its Monsters, was a seminal text, and that came out in, I think, 2005. Uh, and there was, of course, Gollum, which was the Journal of Religion and Monsters, which had a couple issues, but had trouble ever kind of getting off the, the, the ground. Um, and my, my colleague, Kelly Murphy, is an Old Testament a scholar who teaches a class on zombies in the Bible to get butts in seats, right? Um, and so it was actually her idea to, to create a, a unit at the American Academy of Religion on monsters and just sort of looking at fantastic creatures across religious traditions and all the other sort of aspects of religious cosmologies that these entities play into. And of course, the Bible is full of monsters. Mm -hmm. um, if, if you know where to look, uh, Natasha Michaels is a Tibetanist. Tibetan uh, folklore and religious texts are also full of fantastic and, and, and frightening uh, creatures. So this is really a niche of comparative religion that's kind of gone uh, understudied. Um, and there, so there is now a, a five-year seminar on religion and monsters at the AAR, but that was initially rejected. And uh, Natasha and Kelly and I put a lot of work into that and we got rejected and, and sort of in, uh, in revenge, we kind of said, do, do we want to just host our own conference? <laughs> right? Do we really need the American Academy of, of Religion? And it was, it was sort of one of those things where I said, yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's host our own conference. And then you, you flash forward six months later and you're like, oh, why did we ever think to do this? This is, this is so much work. This is such a pain in the butt. Uh, but, but we did it. We had our, our conference. We actually got something like two dozen uh, uh, presenters actually from around the, the world. Um, you know, most of them were from the United States, but some had come out from the UK and even Africa. Um, and, and there was a lot of really great uh, stuff. And so we pitched this to uh, Lexington. And uh, during COVID lockdown, basically, we, we got a lot of those conference papers adapted into to full length chapters. And again, I just love the 
uh, range of material uh, that different people are researching that we could all bring together. So there's a whole chapter on, um, you know, Japanese ghost stories, right? And there's a whole chapter, several chapters actually on a Yeti lore, which everyone's heard of a Yeti. No one's actually kind of looked at the Tibetan uh, uh, source material. Um, so, so just so many kind of interesting uh, topics and certain patterns become, um, start, start to emerge when you uh, look at all this stuff side by side. And that's really what comparative religion has always been, right? Looking at these, these different cultures and, and trying to see if, if any patterns uh, uh, jump out. Well, my hope is the volume does well. I just started it, uh, be writing a review for Culture Encounters. I hope it opens the door for more interest on the part of scholars. I just think this is such an uh, area rich with possibilities. So we'll see. I wish you the best with it. One final question. Uh, you uh, edited a, an edition of Nova Religio on the paranormal. And uh, that topic is still fairly fringe for scholars in terms of whether or not they want to even consider it. Um, why do you, as, a, as an academic working in religious studies, why do you find that something significant that religious studies scholars ought to be taking a look at? Well, we know, we've known for years sociologically that these so-called paranormal topics are important to people, right? Um, the, the Baylor Religion Survey, uh, they, they categorize, I think, six beliefs as paranormal beliefs. So believing in angels is not a paranormal belief, but believing in, you know, the Loch Ness Monster is. Uh, and of that list, uh, about two-thirds of Americans believed in at least one of them. Uh, and so I don't think it gains us anything in religious studies to just act as if uh, no one believes these things and they're not important in people's lives uh, just because they're kind of embarrassing, right? So people like Robert Orsi have written about how um, the academic study of religion has really been shaped by basically a kind of wealthy protestant kind of episcopalian idea of what real religion is and this is why things like the paranormal and even things like pentecostalism have kind of been kicked to uh, the sidelines so that's a problem um so we want to we want a more complete picture of kind of the, the religious landscape the other argument which is a little bit more radical and comes from people like jeff kripal mm -hmm. at rice is that uh, we have no idea what's happening to people who report these paranormal experiences, who say they were abducted by aliens or had psychic premonitions and things like that. And his argument is basically that as religion scholars, we can't just keep kind of bracketing these things out and, and shoving them away, that we ought to have some effort to uh, understand them or explain them. And, and he would say, look, if if there's someone in your neighborhood who says that they are having, you know, telepathic messages from aliens or something, and you, you can't have a, a theory to, to account for that, what business do you have uh, analyzing, you know, mystics who lived hundreds or thousands of years ago, right? If you can't make sense of your own neighbor because they had a weird experience, how can you possibly claim to interpret these other cultures, which is a fair point, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think some people would respond to say, well, Jeff, they're, they're just mentally ill, right? That's, that's why they're, they're hearing messages from aliens or something. Um, but, but he has sort of been on a quest to find a more, um, more satisfying explanation of, of what's happening. And I don't think that quest is anywhere near an end, but it has led him to look at some, uh, some theorists uh, that have been basically completely ignored in religious studies. And these are people like Jacques Vallée, Charles Fort, uh, and, and so on. So his book, Authors of the Impossible, 
uh, was one of the books that we uh, we reviewed in that issue of, of, of Novo Religio. So um, I'm, I'm a big fan of Jeff Kripal's work just because that someone is asking these questions. And I'm, I'm really curious to see where that ultimately uh, ends up. Yes, so am I. Uh, you've got an incredible body of work that we've just been able to kind of give people an introduction to. Do you have anything uh, in the pike? What's in the works? What can we look forward to from you in the near future? Yeah, so I, I've got actually three books under contract. So I've got a, a Rutledge book called New Religious Movements, The Basics, which is just going to be a 60,000 uh, page introduction to that topic. Um, the Cambridge Elements uh, series is also doing a series on New Religious Movements. And I'm doing an even shorter book for that on Satanism and just an intro to, to religious Satanism. The project I'm excited about, though, is called The Exorcist Effect. And it is looking at the relationship between religious beliefs and practices and horror movies. And it's basically mm -hmm. arguing that um, these, these shape each other, right? And uh, I think it was uh, the, the Nun, one of the Conjuring Universe films, the, the writer even said, uh, or there, there was a review by an actual nun of the horror movie, The Nun. <laughs> and the actual is like, where are you guys getting your ideas about Catholicism? This isn't what being a nun is like at all. And uh, the writer said, well, I, I just assumed you could learn about Catholicism from watching horror movies, right? Mm -hmm. Everything I know about Catholicism comes from, <laughs> from horror movies. Uh, so I wonder what percentage of Americans are also in, in, in that category. So this is going to be a book kind of breaking that down and looking historically at how these two things have informed each other. Well, it sounds fascinating. And I love following your work and uh, collaborating whenever we can. And I appreciate you taking time out of a busy academic schedule to come and, and share more about what you're doing. Well, thanks so much for having me. This has been great. Yeah. My guest uh, has been uh, Joseph Laycock. And again, if you look in the uh, podcast program notes, you'll find the titles of the books that we've been discussing and links. And I encourage everyone watching and listening to uh, seek those out and pick up a copy. You'll find them helpful. Again, I'm the host, John Moorhead. And uh, thank everyone for watching and for listening until the next episode.